Hello and welcome to the Apologetics 315 podcast with your hosts, Brian Auten and Chad Gross. Join us for conversations and interviews on the topics of apologetics, evangelism, and the Christian worldview. These men are consummate snowball artists. They use sense and nerve gases to induce hallucinations. People think they're seeing ghosts. Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is Brian Auten. And I'm here with Chad Gross. How are you doing today, Chad, if I might ask? <laughs> well, um, I have a little bit of the laryngitis, so um, I sound a little strange. And so I apologize for that. I feel fine otherwise. I just sound really rough. So um, if, I sound like, <laughs> if I sound like I'm going through puberty, uh, you know, um, that would be why. And uh, I am going to try to limit my comments. So I will give it back to you, Mr. Otten. Thanks for joining us. And uh, today we're going to be talking to Holly Pivik and Doug Guyvett. They've been our guests before when we were talking about the new apostolic reformation. I want to direct you to episode 66, where we talked to Holly and Doug about the new apostolic reformation with our previous interview. And then I actually came out of an experience with sort of NAR influenced churches firsthand. So you can check mm -hmm. out that experience, my recounting of those days on episode 63, and I'll link to those in the show notes. But I'm excited about this interview and I uh, got a lot out of their most recent book called Counterfeit Kingdom, subtitle, The Dangers of New Revelation, New Prophets, and New Age Practices in the Church. So, Chad, is this a book that is cessationist or anything like that, would you say? No, I would not. I would say that it is a book that is very, at its heart, really wants to honor God and um, honor Jesus and is very concerned about some of the unhealthy practices that are coming out of the NAR movement and are also um, seeping into other churches, in some cases without even people being aware. And so this book is a call to kind of join the resistance and to hold to sound doctrine and to be aware of what is going on. Yeah, from the book's description, which, you know, I could describe the book, but the description is really good. So I'm going to go ahead and read that. Is there a new reformation happening in the church? Depends on who you ask. The New Apostolic Reformation, or NAR, is a popular and fast-growing new movement of Christians who emphasize signs and wonders and teach that God is giving new revelation through apostles and prophets. That's the most distinctive part is the apostles and prophets part. But right. is this biblical Christianity? In Counterfeit Kingdom, apologists and NAR experts Holly Pivik and Douglas Guyvett show how the NAR's key tenets distort the gospel, twist the scriptures, are influenced by New Age practices, and lead faithful Christians to shipwreck their faith. They also offer practical suggestions for readers who are already influenced by the NAR, curious about it, or concerned about loved ones who have been swept up into the movement. So, they say, what used to be on the fringes of the church is now mainstream, and many are being influenced by it unaware. This book is a wake-up call. And I think their previous book emphasizes a little bit more of the apostles and prophets aspect of what the NIR movement is and directs the, the readers to the specific teachings. Now, this one, we'll talk a little bit why this is different today with Doug and Holly. But one of the aspects I see in it is that it shows you the other sorts of things that are coming out of and are sort of the result of 
the implications of <laughs> believing that apostles and prophets are are giving new revelation today and what kind of new revelations and directions are they giving chad you could kind of say hey are there apostles and prophets today no okay well no nothing new comes from that you know we're going to read the <laughs> bible and get it get it from the bible but if there's right. apostles and prophets today and they're speaking and directing the various churches and speaking for the global church and trying to direct the global church as a whole, sort of some new movements, um, new end times revivals, we're unleashing new gifts and anointings to usher in moves of God and things like that. Well, that has a lot of implications. So what this book looks at is, well, what are they teaching? What are, what's coming out of that? And, you know, it is quite a read. If you're unaware of the NAR movement, some of the stuff that you're going to read will be like, what? Wait, huh? That's the crazy thing. But then there's a lot of little subtle things that you're like, oh, so that's why I see this happening in various neighboring churches and why they're doing this and why people are running to Redding, California and things like mm -hmm. that. So there's there's a lot of stuff you may not have heard about that's shocking. And then a lot of subtle things that you're like, oh, now I know why this is creeping in. Well, I also wonder if people who read the book and listen to the interview are going to be able to have are going to have a similar experience to what I had, where I always looked at a lot of these um, NAR type of teachers, the new apostolic uh, reformation teachers as kind of wacky or hyper charismatic or something like that. But um, I, I learned through um, Holly and uh, Doug's work that uh, this movement is a lot more nefarious than I thought it was. And uh, how we should be a lot more concerned and a lot more educated about it than I would have thought uh, prior to reading their books and also listening to some of their dialogues that they've done online. Yeah. And Bill Johnson is Dr. Nefario, apparently. So um, Dr. Nefario is hilarious. I love that. I love that character. <laughs> if you haven't seen Despicable Me, you got to get out there. Yes, indeed. I wish I could do my Gru impression, but I can't do it with this voice. So we'll have to hold See, out. See, there's, there's a silver lining every cloud. Uh, wow. Well, a bit about our guests today. First, Holly Pivik has a master's degree in Christian apologetics from Biola University and was the university editor at Biola for nearly a decade. And she also served as managing editor of Biola magazine. And second, Professor Doug Guyvett is Professor of Philosophy at Talbot School of Theology. His interests range over the philosophy of religion, philosophical theology, epistemology, and the history of modern philosophy. We'll link to both Holly's and Professor Doug Guyvett's books in the show notes. A lot of good stuff there. There's a couple books to direct you to on the topics of the NER. The one we're talking about today is called Counterfeit Kingdom, The Dangers of New Revelation, New Prophets, and New Age Practices in the Church. And a couple that we've interviewed Doug and Holly on previously. First, God's super apostles encountering the worldwide prophets and apostles movement, and also a new apostolic reformation, a biblical response to a worldwide movement. So check all those things out on the show notes. Holly's website is hollypivik.com, and Doug Guyvett's website is dougguyvett.wordpress.com. All right, enough from us. Let's go to the interview. Let's get ready. Switch me on. Right. Well, Doug and Holly, thanks for coming back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having us back. It's great to be back with you, Brian. We're excited to have you because uh, Chad and I have both enjoyed your newest book together. Yes. Counterfeit Kingdom, you know, discussing the NAR movement and the New Apostolic Reformation and it, the various teachings coming out of there and, and 
you know, the implications of what thinking that apostles and prophets for today, what those sort of new revelations actually entail and what they're doing to the church and how they're influencing the church. I wondered if you guys could talk just a bit about why another book on the New Apostolic Reformation, how you would say this one differs from your previous books. Well, so our our first books, A New Apostolic Reformation, and then God's Super Apostles was a condensed version of that larger book. That really went deep into the theology of the New Apostolic Reformation, uh, more generally, uh, heavily documented. This new book, though, Counterfeit Kingdom, really focuses more on the practices of the movement, really the practical ways it's um, showing up in churches and ministries and music and the way it's making inroads into churches. And so it just really shows people what the NAR looks like, how you could spot it, how it's spreading, what the tactics are that are being used to promote it, to draw people in, and also the types of damage that really how it's impacting people's lives and, and hurting people. Mm-hmm. Yes. And while the focus is on the practical side of things, it is still a biblical and theological evaluation of those aspects of the movement. Have you guys had personal experiences with NAR? Is that part of what led you to this? Or was it friends having experiences with NAR or families that you knew? You know, I guess somebody could ask, why do they care so much? Yeah, for me, I first learned about the NAR when I was working at Biola University. I was the managing editor of Biola Magazine and the university editor. And while I was there is is when I first learned about it. I was also getting my master's degree in Christian apologetics at the same time. And so when I first heard of it, I was very interested because I had never, it was a set of teaching I'd, I had never heard about before, about modern apostles and prophets. And it kind of surprised me because I was a researcher of, of cults and, and off-key groups and so it just caught my attention because I never heard of it before. I started researching it and realized even back then in 2002 how big and massive this movement was, but I was not aware of it. And, and once I became aware of it, I, I started seeing the signs of its influence all around. I just hadn't seen it before. Around the same time, though, I, I didn't think I knew anybody who was part of it, but I quickly realized that the person I started dating, who's now my husband, that he was attending an NAR church. And I put two and two together and I talk about the story in the book, but I, I thought, oh, wow, <laughs> this person I'm dating is part of the NAR. And so that was a big part of our relationship. And uh, the real tension and division that was caused by the NAR, we couldn't find a church that we could attend together and worship together. And then later when he came out of the NAR, just still the real um, tension with extended family who followed the apostles and prophets of this movement um, and were upset that we didn't and that we aren't you know, raising the children, grandchildren or whatever in this movement. And so, and I've even seen a, a, a family member die of cancer, uh, though she had received promises from prophets in this movement that she would not die. And she just clung to those promises until her very last moments. And it was a very sad thing to see because the people around her couldn't even admit that she was dying because it, you know, the, she would think that would somehow jinx her healing or something because they weren't believing and having faith. And so I have had some firsthand experience, especially with the division among family members that's caused by this movement. 
Well, one of the questions I want to start out with is along the lines of uh, motivation, because I think from those who are like from the outside of the NIR movement looking in, it's like, oh, I'm trying to figure out what this is. Wow, I didn't realize this was going on and I'm shocked by it. Or, oh, now I understand these subtle things that are sort of creeping around in, within the churches I'm observed. However, from the perspective of someone who might be in the NIR movement or agree with various teachings that you explore in the book, they might come along and see that and say, you know what, I get the idea that you guys are cessationists and you're not open to the move of the spirit. And therefore, you know, you're just poisoning the well against, you know, anyone who would be wanting to hear from God or receive healing. And you guys are clearly against that sort of thing. They might be coming at it from that sort of point of view. So why should they listen to you? And is that your motivation? Yeah, well, that, that certainly is not our motivation. As we've outlined in all of the books that we've written, now this third one included, uh, we make a distinction between uh, this movement, NAR, and classical Pentecostalism and, and the charismatic movement, for example, because there are teachings within the NAR movement that are not part of classical Pentecostalism or charismatic right. teaching. And we point out, that there are uh, many in the classical traditions and the historic traditions of those, uh, those Christians in those camps, we point out that they are concerned about this movement as well. And they've seen inroads of NAR into their churches and seen it split their churches in ways that are causing a, a great deal of uh, grief and pain for the leaders and for members of the congregations. So what we're describing is not meant to be a criticism of a broader charismatic view of, of, of the church and church life or of Pentecostalism either, for that matter. We don't take up the debate between continuationism and cessationism. We don't take a position on that in our writings right. because we are critiquing a movement that is subject to critical evaluation quite apart from the view you take on that debate. And so we say that the criticisms that we offer of the new apostolic reformation are compatible with either view. You could be a cessationist and, uh, and appreciate the, the critique, but you could also be a continuationist and appreciate the same critique just as enthusiastically. Yeah, I think you even say in the book that there are people within Pentecostalism that share your concerns. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, another possible criticism would be, hey, it sounds like you're just going after Bethel Redding and Bill Johnson. And, you know, aren't the examples that you're pulling here maybe just embarrassing abuses and maybe not representative of the whole movement? One thing I would say, the reason that we focus, as we do a lot in the book on Bethel is because Bethel is the most influential church in this movement today globally. It's really popularized the teachings of the NAR and, and just spread them throughout the world. I mean, we're contacted by people from other countries regularly who talk about Bethel teachings in those countries and the inroads they're making there. And so that's one reason we focus so heavily on Bethel. And Bethel networks, uh, Bethel leaders like Bill Johnson network closely with other NAR leaders outside of Bethel. And the teachings that we critique are not peculiar to Bethel or the abuses that, in fact, we point out things in the book, too, from other uh, abuses and, and teachings from outside of Bethel as well in our book. But it does focus heavily on Bethel. In chapter one, you share stories of those in the New Apostolic Reformation 
participating in things like um, trying to suck the spiritual power from corpses of dead apostles, yelling wakey wakey to shake angels out of their slumber to move them to action, even trying to cast out the demon of racism by uh, quoting Gandalf from Lord of the Rings. Admittedly, just being honest, this just seems absurd to me. Uh, It just seems crazy and bizarre. What attracts kind of otherwise reasonable people to the NAR movement? Yeah, well, that is a that's a difficult question. It's hard to answer that question. I think it would be difficult to generalize and say this is what attracts anyone who uh, is drawn into the movement. I think there can be a variety of reasons. You say people that are otherwise reasonable. That's right. They may be biblically literate and they they study their Bibles and they may be yeah. uh, thoughtful Christians. And yet there's something about it that has drawn them. One thing that I've heard repeatedly over the years about Bethel, for example, this is specifically about Bethel, is that people will say to me, you know, God is clearly doing a, a work there. I don't agree with everything that they teach, but God is clearly doing a, a work there, a great work. And uh, I always like to ask, well, what, for example, would you say are, is the great work that God is doing there? And what is, what is your evidence for that? And then what are some of the things that you would disagree with? And uh, people are generally stumped by that. You would think that they would have something specific to say in response. And almost always, sure. it's just silence. People think that the measure of a work of God is to be understood in terms of supernatural manifestations of the Spirit. That means in particular, healings happening on a regular basis, prophecy being given on a regular basis, and people being activated in the prophetic uh, as a matter of routine experience. And so they associate a live congregation of worship and fellowship with those things, and they think that anything else is a, they're missing, you know, what is of great spiritual value. We talk in the book about moral miracles and the production of the fruit of the Spirit as evidence of a work of God in the lives of individuals and in a, in a fellowship. And uh, there's this obsession now, this, in this day and age, with the miraculous as our index of whether or not God is at work. And yet Jesus warned us in Matthew 24, verse 24, that in the last days there would be uh, prophets and apostles who would do signs and wonders even, but that yeah. they were not a work of God. And it's interesting to me that we're seeing a, a, a rising almost obsession with the supernatural as Jesus predicted there would be. Now, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that we know exactly which is and which isn't a work of God in every case, but I think that we need to be very uh, mindful of this warning that Jesus gave us and realize that there are other indexes of spiritual vitality in churches that would seem dead by the wrong standards, right? By the wrong standards, they might seem like there's no life there. Uh, Maybe they don't sing the right way, or they don't conduct themselves otherwise with the, the kind of overt excitement and enthusiasm, but you're seeing lives change through the preaching of the word and through the fellowship of the saints, and there's accountability there, and the fruit of the Spirit is developed People are getting recovering from addictions and uh, dealing with uh, relational challenges and so forth in biblical terms. And, you know, you can't really slight a church for being faithful in those ways and say, well, that's a dead church because they don't have 
signs and wonders and miraculous manifestations of the spirit on a regular mm-hmm. basis. So, but I think people miss that and they are drawn to the overt kind of the sensational side of things, even if it takes them a while to realize that more is being promised than what is being delivered. Wow, that's good. In your chapter four, you deal with what the, the chapter's entitled Jesus's Overlooked Warning, and which is, you know, beware of false prophets, you're saying there, Doug. So I wonder if you could talk about uh, why that's important today, and more particularly, how can we discern what a false prophet would be, or a false teacher would be, because that's the thing we want to watch out for. So what are some of the telltale signs? Mm-hmm. I think one of the, the number one needs, probably the, the first great need, is that anybody who purports to be a prophet needs to provide evidence that he is a prophet or that she is a prophet. Unfortunately, there's a tendency, I think, in the church to accept the claim or the posture of being prophetic without demanding good evidence that it's legitimate, that it really is prophecy that originates with God. You know, how often do people say uh, of a prophet, here's the evidence that this person really is a prophet of God who's speaking the truth. That's the first thing we need to see. And there's, it's not a lack of faith to demand evidence. You want to know what's the evidence for this so that I know where my faith should be placed. And so that's the first order of business is to demand of anybody who claims to be a prophet good evidence that they are a prophet. And uh, for that, uh, you, you want to see evidence in their handling of revelation in general. So we have 66 books of the Bible inspired by God, and a prophet should be able to teach the Word of God faithfully and handle it correctly and uh, faithfully and not mess things up and not get the interpretation wrong with revelation that we already have. And if I see a prophet who can't read the Bible and uh, teach the Bible clearly and correctly, then that's a reason why I would be suspicious of their claim to be a prophet when they offer other revelations that are not from the scriptures themselves. They're added revelations. So that's a crucial requirement, is that a prophet be able to be a, a faithful teacher, accurate teacher, of the revelation that we've all received, because that's something we can check. We can test their skill in handling the scriptures. And uh, if they can't do that, then that's a red flag if they come along and say, now here's something else that God has told me that I need to tell you. That's a place to start. Let's say prophets get something wrong. And you talk in the book a little bit about the Trump prophecies where um, Trump's going to be reelected for a second term and, and he's not. And sort of like the goalposts are moved, so to speak. Uh, well, you know, that's or, or they might say, well, we got it wrong. But what are the are there tests within uh, the movement itself that uh, would give them any sort of legitimacy? Or is there always like a get out of jail free card when it comes to that? Uh, to that, I want to say. That's one of the striking things about the movement is that there are so many means of excusing failed prophecy. So if it's prophecy about the future and uh, that prophecy fails and we document cases of that, I mean, these are dramatic uh, cases of this, very easy to establish and demonstrate. Uh, you would think that that would be embarrassing, that it would you know, cause people to reconsider their confidence in the claim to be a prophet. But these people who make these mistakes will say, 
okay, I got that wrong, but it doesn't mean that I'm not a prophet. And so then you do have to wonder, well, what criteria do they use and, and what do they say to their own people? How do they instruct their people in um, discernment of a truly prophetic ministry? On that, really, you, you meet with pretty painful silence. It's not clear what the criteria are if you think that a prophet can get it, get it wrong. I wanted to add that there's a document called the Prophetic Standard Statement that was issued by um, some prophetic leaders and, and signed by many prophetic leaders in this movement and are just prophetic leaders who, who may not you know, identify as being part of the New Apostolic Reformation, but they believe that prophets are for today. And they talk about um, how to evaluate prophecy and the document actually says we can only believe the prophetic word if it is not contrary to scripture, if it is not factually in error, and our own spirit bears witness with it. It also states that prophecy should be evaluated by other mature leaders um, in addition to the prophetic minister who delivers it. But, you know, we note that these tests are not adequate. Um, the, those first tests that if a word is not contrary to scripture, if it's not factually in error, those are negative tests that can disconfirm a prophecy, but passing those tests would not confirm that a prophecy is true. And really the only positive test that's presented is that our own spirit bears witness with it. And that's really a highly subjective and oddly spiritualistic uh, test. Um, so really what we say is it's almost totally useless. But that's, that's uh, something that leaders in this movement will say is that, you know, as long as it doesn't contradict scripture, and other mature leaders have evaluated it. Really, you just got to see if your own spirit bears witness with it. And, and that's the test that's given. Mm. Yeah. And when, you, when they say, this is what I mean when I say they don't really, they're not forthcoming about the actual criteria that are used. Because, you know, how do you know, first, that this test in terms of how your own spirit bears witness to it, how do you know that that's reliable? What does that even look like? How do you apply that test? Uh, where do you, what is it about your own spirit that has to be right in order for it to be accurately rendering a verdict about a prophet's claims? And if they say, well, we need other leaders, mature leaders, evaluating these things, okay, fine. What criteria are they using to evaluate? And they're not telling us what those criteria are. It's just, well, if other leaders think that this is legitimate, then that's fine too. Unfortunately, many prophets who have failed were given a pass by leaders prior to that. Mm. And which leaders are we talking about? You know, so we <laughs> we need specific criteria that are not so subjective as that. And, uh, and we're just not getting them. And then on top of it, the statement that Holly is referring to uh, allows that a prophet can get things wrong. And we think that's a, that's clearly a violation of Deuteronomy 18. And so those who are mindful of that will say, well, the New Testament gift of prophecy uh, does not require that a prophet be 100% accurate in everything that she predicts. I say she because, you know, we could use either pronoun here because there are male and female prophets in, in the church right. and in the movement. Well, what is spiritual abuse and are there particular NAR teachings that you think most lead to spiritual abuse or, or can fall into that? I'm sure you've heard from a lot of people who've been in, in and out of these sort of environments and kind of get burned in one way or another. So maybe you could speak to that. 
Um, I would like Doug to say some things too, because I know he has some thoughts about this. I just wanted to mention, because I don't think we've said it yet during this interview, um, the core teaching that sets apart NAR from, from all others, even Pentecostal and or charismatic beliefs or all others, is that the governing offices of apostle and prophet are today. So they teach that apostles and prophets are supposed to be in church government. And actually that they're supposed to be the highest offices of church government and all other church leaders are supposed to submit to them, pastors, elders, and, and everybody else comes under their authority too. And so this relates to the question about spiritual abuse, right? Because these people are claiming to hold the highest office in church government. They're also claiming to see, receive new revelation, new revelation that's critical for the church to um, fulfill its purposes on earth and fulfill God's will um, and bring God's kingdom to earth and this kind of thing. And so, you know, there can be a spiritual abuse in any church, of course, and there is in, in other churches that might just have pastors and leadership. But when the leaders are claiming to receive direct revelation from God and to have this extraordinary authority, then that definitely opens the doors to spiritual abuse uh, in a much greater way. And, and on top of that, apostles will often be over an entire network, sometimes of hundreds or thousands of churches. So the abuse can um, be much bigger, too, than when a, an apostle or a pastor might be just over a single church. We give examples in the book of stories. We share stories of people who did have experienced spiritual abuse. We receive stories all the time from readers of our previous books talking about um, just be attending churches where um, they just were afraid to question the apostle or prophet. They were afraid to make any major life decisions like moving or having children or anything like that without first consulting a prophet or, or the church's apostle. Wow. So, and then when people would question an apostle or prophet they're often called disparaging names like uh it said they have a jezebel spirit or they're they have a pharisee spirit or you know they have a critical spirit and you know things like that they're they're critics of revival and so um these are different types of of spiritual abuse that can happen one thing doug and i have been talking about and i hope doug can weigh in on this is that even even calling yourself an apostle when you're not, when you haven't presented evidence that you're an apostle, that in and of itself can be spiritual abuse. Uh, one area where we uh, see abuse is in practical teachings about prayer. Prayer is central to the Christian life. Uh, the biblical teaching is that we ask God for things. We're enjoined by Jesus to petition him, uh, to ask for things in his name, but to do it in his will or submitting our wills to the outworking of God's will when he answers our prayers. And sometimes we don't get the things that we ask for, and we don't expect to because we want what God desires and what God deems best. There are things that he won't do for us, perhaps, unless we ask for them, unless we pray for them. But that doesn't mean that we're always going to receive what, he want, what, what we ask for. In the NAR movement, it's very common to stress a different kind of praying that's not really taught in Scripture. And this is uh, prayer declarations where you... Um, practically, prophetically, declare that something is going to happen, and uh, by, by declaring it, you increase the chances that it's going to happen. It's like your prayers are leveraging God's action uh, to perform uh, a desired effect, produce a desired effect. And there's al almost something superstitious about it when you realize that they think that by getting more people to participate in the same declaration prayer for the same thing, 
that increases the chances that God will move and do what you're declaring. So you can declare that someone will be raised from the dead. That's a kind of prayer, they say, but you're not asking God to raise the person from, from the dead. You're declaring that it will happen. And your prayer is, is <clears throat> moving the hand of God in that way. And it seems to them to be a lack of faith if you simply say, this is something we desire, but we submit that to the outworking of your will, uh, uh, sovereign God. Uh, that just seems to them to be a lack of faith. And your prayer is jinxed if you qualify it in that way. They think that's kind of a cop-out to pray that way. So you've got to declare these things. Well, that's not taught in Scripture at all. And yet, if that's the way you're praying, or you think that you're praying, that's what it's called, and if it's not prayer, then if that's all you do as a prayerful Christian, you really are living a prayerless life. I mean, that's just a, a logical consequence of a of, of, of mm. mistaken or false teaching about prayer. And I don't know um, it, how much your listeners are aware of this or not, but in December 2019, Bethel Church had this like six day campaign to raise a little two year old girl from the dead. Her name was Olive. She was the daughter of a worship leader there. She passed away unexpectedly in her sleep. And so um, Bethel leaders urged their followers worldwide to make, to join them in making prayer declarations. And they, and they were holding services where they were, um, you know, telling Olive to come out of the grave and making these prayer declarations. And so, um, and that was picked up by national media it was, you know, and so it got a lot of news coverage. And so this is an example of how, how their prayer declarations can, it can play out and the kind of damage that can be caused to the uh, church's witness with that type of thing. You know, it seems to me that some of the negative effects are when you have uh, aberrant teachings that start to compound. So, for example, if you believe it's always God's will to heal, and you also have a prophet that you believe is a prophet with authority. And they said that someone will be healed. And then you also believe that I have to declare for that healing to happen. And if I give up, I'm lacking in faith. That puts me, if I believe those things, in a predicament where I have to rely upon my efforts. And I'm in a no-win situation if that thing doesn't come to pass. So there's all kinds of combinations of these sort of compounded. Some of these things are like uh, the declarative prayer where you may not even realize it. And, and you'll see it in some of the music. Can you talk a bit about how uh, music were coming out of uh, the likes of Bethel Reading? People may not even be aware that it has sort of some of these teachings within it. Yeah, so, so really the most popular music used in churches today, much of it is coming from churches that are either... Um, overt churches that are overtly NAR, like Bethel Church in Reading, or Jesus Culture, which came out of Bethel Church in Reading, or or the music from the International House of Prayer in, in Kansas City, Missouri, the forerunner music there. And then um, there's a lot more music coming from other uh, places that are, they might not be churches that are overtly NAR, but you can definitely see NAR influence in the lyrics. And so when people learn the teachings of NAR, when they learn the buzzwords, you start to pick up on them in the music, but a lot of people don't recognize it because they're, they don't know this movement. And so they don't know the buzzwords. And so they can sing along and, you know, innocently and not, and not know. Um, but we, we discuss specific lyrics in the book. Um, 
For example, some lyrics from Bethel Music Songs where they talk about calling down the reign of heaven um, and how that fits with their theology that we're supposed to bring God's physical kingdom to earth and that the way we do that is through our prayer declarations. That's calling down. There, there's another song that talks about how uh, just when we open our mouth, how miracles just start breaking out. Again, a reference to prayer declarations and the power our words have to create miracles, essentially. So we talk about how the the music, the lyrics are laced with NAR theology. But then we also just talk about the problem of, you know, some of the lyrics are seem to be just fine. They seem sound. But when churches use this music, like, say, from Bethel Music, it's giving an implied pass to the church that the church is okay. And a lot, we've been told by many people that they were drawn into NAR because of the music. They really liked a Bethel Music song. And then they decided to go check out the church and go to a conference. And the next thing you know, they're part of NAR and then they're bringing their church into NAR. And so um, we have a whole chapter talking about um, the dangers of this music. Yes. And uh, their leaders are very explicit about exporting their theology through their music. And Bill Johnson has said uh, we have a pass. There's a passage that we quote from him where he says music bypasses all of the intellectual barriers. And when the anointing of God is on a song, people will begin to believe things they wouldn't believe through teaching. And so he thinks that the music is a way to bypass the intellect, which might be critical and uh, be a, you know, lead people to be cautious. Uh, It can bypass all of that. You can go kind of straight to the heart and get people hooked uh, on the theology that way. He's he's pretty explicit about that. So they understand the power of music to infuse uh, their doctrines into uh, the understanding of people that sing that that music. And, uh, you know, people people attest to that. They, They accept the fact that they are more receptive to these doctrines because the music is... Uh, personally moving and uh, production quality is quite good and and it's exciting and there's an irony too when a uh, church that is more subdued and where miracles are not as manifest is uh, incorporating this kind of music into their corporate worship Uh, the irony is that uh, people are going to be their own people will be comparing their worship experience in their own congregations with what they perceive is going on at a place like Bethel Church, and they'll see that contrast, and I think it will lead to uh, criticism of their own of their own churches. So uh, you're you're sort of sh- shooting yourself in the foot if you are commending an experience that you're not replicating because you haven't bought into the theology of the movement. Yeah, it's kind of like, hey, what's wrong? We must not be following God because we're not seeing like glitter coming out of the, out of the rafters or something. But one thing that I wasn't really aware of that it brought to light in the book was the idea of this uh, end times revival and how there seems to be a, a belief that's coming out of um, NAR churches or this prophetic movement, if you will, that, you know, there's going to be this huge end time revival and the kingdom of God is just going to sort of take over and you know God wants to raise up end time warriors and prophets and people who can raise the dead and and you know speak over hospitals and see people you know healed and things 
like there's this just huge um, harvest that's going to happen. I wonder where is this coming from? <laughs> What's going on with that? And I mean, it seems a little different than than what I've read about what revival is in the terms of like repentance and putting away sin and coming back to God and rending your heart before the Lord and that, that kind of a thing. Well, there are prophecies that have been given by very well-known prophets in this movement. Uh, some, of, some of them are deceased, but they're still highly revered, um, like Bob Jones and Paul Kane. Um, these are prophets that you'll hear leaders in this movement, like Bill Johnson or other leaders like Mike Bickle, talk about all the time. They, these, these guys are really revered. And these, according, their prophecies are that there would be this great end-time harvest of souls. It's called the billion soul harvest. Something like a billion people will um, convert to belief in Christ. And, and it will happen because they'll see all these miracles that will be being performed by people under the leadership of the apostles and prophets. Stadiums will be filled with people and news uh, stations will be broadcasting these healings worldwide. And it will just cause this, this huge revival and they also there have been prophecies about um a great end time transfer of wealth that the wealth of the wicked would be transferred to the righteous or, or essentially the people in nar so that they will have the funds that are necessary to build the kingdom of god on earth and so the prosperity gospel comes into play there because people who are part of nar can kind of cash in on this great in time transfer of wealth and and but the funds are to be used to build God's kingdom on earth this physical kingdom on earth um, under the leadership of the apostles and prophets and so this so there are a lot of a lot of people don't realize that when their town or their city is having a revival event you know their church might be invited to take part many times these revival events are being held by uh, NAR churches um, that hold to these teachings these NAR teachings about revival. And so you could have more conservative or more traditional mainstream churches that, you know, decide to partner in these NAR revival efforts. And they're not aware when the leadership of these efforts are NAR leaders that they're actually partnering inadvertently with this counterfeit NAR type revival. There's a real contrast between the revival that they're seeking and the signs that they see uh, as evidence of revival and historic revivals. Historic revivals have uh, been rooted in a preaching of the word, a clear statement of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the call to repent and exercise faith in Jesus, and then the, see transformation in the lives of individuals, uh, moral transformation. For them, the great sign of revival is manifestations of the spirit. And these, you know, these have to be tested, but just the, even if these were legitimate, the overt manifestations of the spirit with miracles or what have you wouldn't themselves be evidence of a revival of the soul of an individual. Mm -hmm. And so that's the wrong emphasis anyway. But then there's the problem of uh, spurious miracles and prophetic claims, new revelations, and so forth, which make it even more further removed from true revival. And in our mm -hmm. chapter, we give 13 signs or clues that if a revival is is like a NAR revival and um so we talk about things like a really emphasis an emphasis on communicating with angels or having encounters with angels um that's a heavy emphasis and there's actually courses there are courses 
classes you can take, books you can read that will teach you how to have encounters with angels. You know, there's um, a real emphasis in NAR Revival on the ministry time, they call it, but it's usually at the end of a service. It's not the teaching time, but it's at the end when people get really excited because they know that the prophet or the apostle might invite people forward to lay their hands on them. And so they think that maybe they'll have miraculous gifts that are imparted to them so they can like learn to prop or they can begin to prophesy or heal the sick or or somebody is seeking a healing, a physical healing. Or a lot of people come seeking uh, prophetic words from the apostles or prophets. And there's fire tunnels often during this ministry time. So that's when you have people at a NAR meeting, uh, the leaders will like kind of form a tunnel with their hands and the, the people attending the revival can run through the tunnel and have what they think are encounters with the Holy Spirit. And so those can become very chaotic and people can go like on YouTube and, and Google like Bethel Church Fire Tunnel and see some of these these things. But these are all the kind of things that you would see at a, a NAR type revival event. Um, it's not the what, like at a, like my church growing up, they would have a tent revival every year. They would hold it outside. Mm. They would invite a speaker who would teach the gospel and the word of God and people would come forward to, to get saved or to rededicate their life to Christ. This isn't what we're talking about. It's something very different than that. Yeah. It's big, big difference. Uh, yeah. Some of the preaching that comes out of NAR stuff is like not necessarily exegesis. It's more like reading Old Testament obscure stories and drawing out some new figurative meaning from that. And I wonder if there are other sort of signs along that lines as far as how do you might recognize problematic methods of teaching the Bible? Yeah. Well, so Bill Johnson talks, for example, about how he was reading a passage of Scripture was the Old Testament. And uh, the Spirit of God breathed on the words of the text that he was reading. And uh, on that occasion, there was, he received a kind of illumination as to a meaning of the passage. Now, that was a, a meaning that you could not derive from the passage without this fresh breathing of the Spirit on the words. Now, he doesn't explain how that works. He doesn't say anything about what that means even, that the Spirit of God is breathing on the words, but it's as if he was receiving new revelation that was somehow connected to the text, but it wasn't in the text, objectively speaking. Uh, it's not like you could derive it from the passage. Well, you can teach whatever you want under that. You could teach all sorts of spurious and false doctrines and, and purport to have... Uh, special divine illumination uh, to support it, but you've got, you, nobody would be able to test it. Nobody would be able to say, well, now, wait a minute, that's not what the passage actually says, because that would be irrelevant given the way he received that illumination. It was a subjective process for him. And this can happen during a service while preaching as well. And, uh, you know, he might say, well, look, I, I don't really prepare sermons and I don't study the text so much. I'm, I'm wanting to be receptive to how God leads me to speak here in the moment while I'm preaching. Yeah. And I, I wanted to say, you know, many like the seven mountain mandate is a revelation that prophets in this move movement have given that the way the church is supposed to take dominion or socio-political control of the earth is under the leadership of apostles and prophets is by taking control of the seven major societal institutions um, so that's the education, religion, family, business, government, arts, and media. And what they do is they'll take 
they'll point to some Old Testament passages like Isaiah 2 2. Um, it says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. And, they'll, and through prophetic illumination, they'll say they receive pro pro prophetic illumination that that is a passage teaching the seven mountain mandate or, or some um, will point to Deuteronomy 7, 1, which talks about um, the seven kingdoms that um, Israel was told to, you know, um, to remove from Canaan when they were coming into the promised land. And so these are passages of scripture. That, so they, they'll say that their teachings are supported in scripture, but they claim to receive prophetic illumination and to receive insights that nobody has ever seen before. Okay. so. Um... You know, you talk about the use of scripture that it's quite questionable it might lead us to another chapter uh, that is creatively titled uh, the passionately wrong translation or and um, you talk about the origins of the passion translation. Could you talk just to give us a brief overview of what that is and and what might be problematic? Yeah, um, the passion translation is a very popular translation of the Bible, um, so-called translation produced by the apostle Brian Simmons. He claims that in 2009, Jesus visited him, breathed on him, personally commissioned him to produce this new translation on the Bible. He even claims that, that God gave him like divine downloads and secrets of the Hebrew language, you know, that would enable him to translate. And um, it, this translation has been endorsed by many high profile NAR apostles and prophets, including Bill Johnson, who's, who has preached from it in the pulpit. He uh, there's Bethel Church has its own special edition of the Passion Translation with like a foreword contributed by Bill Johnson, I think. And so it's it's a very popular translation and it's being used not only in Pentecostal charismatic churches or NAR churches. It's it's even uh, being used, you know, just some more main, some more mainstream churches. Um, people will tell me stories about uh, how, you know, like their youth ministry was using it or something like that or their women's ministry. There, we talk about the major problems with this translation. Uh, Brian Simmons does, does not have the qualifications to produce a new translation. He himself admits that he's not a biblical, he's not a scholar in the biblical languages, but um, he does claim that there have been new discoveries of Aramaic manuscripts that have indicated that really the New Testament was originally written in Aramaic, not Greek. And so he's you know, claiming to bring insights to his translation from these manuscripts that, that, you know, that don't exist. Um, and so, uh, Mike Winger, actually the YouTuber, Mike Winger commissioned some scholars, reputable Bible scholars to review the different books of the passion translation, like Douglas Moo and Craig Blomberg and different scholars. And, and these people have looked at the passion translation and found serious problems with it. Um, but unfortunately, leaders like Bill Johnson have really persisted in their recommendation of this translation. Yeah, uh, Bill Johnson, uh, you know, will talk about this being one of the great strides forward in Bible translation. And yet he doesn't have the credentials either. He's not trained in the biblical languages. He has never served on a translation committee of a major translation of the Bible. You know, we've talked about his approach to hermeneutics and homiletics. So, uh, you know, a, a recommendation from him is a recommendation from someone who really doesn't have the chops to determine whether a translation is a, a uh, is progress in the Bible translation. And it's interesting, too, that Brian Simmons has made numerous revisions to his translation. 
Now, you would think that if he received virtually special revelation for the production of this translation, he wouldn't have to do that. Yeah, if it's if it's coming straight from from God, you'd think that it was correct uh, unless he's uh, is he admitting that he made some mistakes in hearing or is it something changed? You know? Well, the it's not so much a, an explicit um, public admission of failure or fault. Uh, it's just that it kind of quietly uh, sneaks in in the form of a of a revision in a subsequent edition. So there's a in one case uh, we we have several examples of how passages are rendered in earlier or even current editions of the Passion Translation. Think, I'm thinking of the reference to the Apostles. Uh, Holly, yeah, that's Matthew 10, Matthew 10, 2. Matthew 10, 2. In an earlier edition, uh, Brian Simmons renders this as he introduced the list of uh, Apostles that Jesus called in service, uh, you know, his disciples. These were his disciples. But these are the first 12 Apostles. And the implication is that there are other apostles. And the implication is right. that these apostles have the same stature as the original 12. Well, in a subsequent edition, he did drop the word first, but first was never there in the first place, right? It wasn't in any manuscript. And uh, there was, uh, we believe, a NAR agenda that accounts for his introduction of that language. So when called out on it, it just doesn't show up in a subsequent edition that way. Um, another passage where it is curiously non-literal is uh, in his rendering of John 14, 12, where Jesus said, in almost all the English translations, it'll say something like, by the way, this is where Jesus is speaking to his disciples in the upper, upper room, John 14. And in verse 12, he says, uh, the works that I have done, you will do also, and greater works than these as well. And the Greek word there is ergon, which is translated works. But in the Passion Translation, it is translated miracles. Now, there is a word for miracles or for signs and wonders, uh, but those words are not uh, in that passage. And uh, so, uh, Simmons has interpreted the passage to mean that works equals miracles. And so the passage is, uh, says, the, the miracles that I have done you will do also, and greater miracles than these you will do. Um, that's a paraphrase of a paraphrase. So uh, this is an interpretation that's designed to give people a sense of the theology that's really drives a great deal of what goes on in the movement. Because uh, they believe, Bill Johnson clearly believes, and he has said this, this verse has to be, refer, be referring to miracles. And so they believe that when Jesus performed miracles, he did it as a man in dependence on the Holy Spirit. And you and I can do the same thing and produce the same sorts of miracles that Jesus did and even greater miracles than Jesus himself did. So it's critical to them and their theology to understand this verse this way. And uh, Brian Simmons did them a favor by translating from the Aramaic the verse in the way that he does. You know, it, it's crazy how it, there's no belief that just is different and just sits by itself and does nothing. Every teaching has some sort of ripple effect, which 
it kind of leads me to this other chapter, chapter nine, where it says, is it always God's will to heal? That's another one of those teachings or beliefs that is taught like that uh, instead of thinking, well, let me pray, God, if it's your will to heal me, please heal me. It's more like, I know you want me healed. And so I declare my healing and claim and receive my healing. So that's the huge difference between how someone believes and how it affects their prayers. Would you talk just a bit about what you cover in that chapter? I mean, you do talk about the implications of that sort of belief and and how it leads to maybe peculiar healing practices, if you will. The idea is, um, you know, in NAR, they believe that every Christian can have miraculous gifts activated in themselves. It's kind of like we all have these latent gifts, but they just need to be activated through through active activation exercises, uh, taking classes, enrolling in supernatural schools and ministry, this kind of thing. But in line with that, there are a number of peculiar healing practices we talk about. For example, there's something called healing rooms. A healing room can found be found in many small cities, small towns, large cities. People can just Google, see if there's a healing room in their area. And what happens is those are often like um, kind of storefronts or, or churches where um, people people in NAR have opened. And, and so people can sign up and make an appointments and come in to receive healing. It could be physical healing. It could be emotional healing, psychological healing. But the idea is if everybody can be activated in a gift of healing, then any Christian could really have this gift activated in themselves or and and then go open up one of these healing rooms and then offer their, their services. And so these healing rooms are under the Apostle Cal Pierce. He's in Spokane, Washington. Uh, but there's hundreds of healing rooms throughout the world. So people come in and when they come in, what happens is, is say like they, you know, have they have a physical condition, they want healing. The person that is in the healing room will um, will make prayer declarations that we talked about already for their healing. Or they might receive prophetic words for the person and, and that kind of thing. We talk about another thing we talk about in that chapter is dead raising teams. There's actually uh, an actual dead raising team that was founded in 2006 by a graduate of Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. That's a school at Bethel Church where people go to basically learn to be miracle workers. And this, the founder of this, Tyler Johnson, um, he he trains um, churches to train other teams to go to the scenes of accidents, hospitals, morgues, and to pray for resurrections. This dead raising team has been publicly praised by Bill Johnson. Um, they claim to have produced something like 15 resurrections to date if you go to their website. So this is another example. Um, a very popular practice that's really increasing in popularity that was popularized by Bethel is called Sozo, S-O-Z-O. And it's really a place where people, uh, it's uh, people um, like churches might start their own Sozo um, ministry and people can sign up if they're seeking emotional healing or, or spiritual healing. Um, and so this might be more for people who struggle with something like anxiety or depression or suicidal thoughts or things like that. They can sign up for a Sozo session and then you have trained Sozo practitioners who will um, will like prophetically receive words that might reveal, uncover what it is that is going wrong, what's causing the person's problems. So but one concern about these Sozo rooms is many uh, people have said that that um, they recovered false memories during these sessions. 
that they um, were led to believe that maybe they were abused as a child when they weren't actually abused or something like that because the prophetic minister, you know, might have suggested that to them. And so we we talk about that and share some stories in our book about about that and concerns about these alleged false recovered memories. Yeah, there's a twofold deception in the teaching of NAR on the relationship between faith and miracles. Uh, one is that our faith uh, multiplies the occurrence of miracles. Miracles happen as a, as a function of the exercise of faith. And the other is that our faith depends on the occurrence of miracles, that, that you need miracles to bolster your faith and to have confidence that, you know, God is at work in the world today. These are deceptions because uh, God is perfectly capable of working miracles within his will, whether or not we have faith. And uh, we have plenty uh, to go on that grounds our faith without a constant occurrence of miracles in our lives to sustain that. What comes to mind is sort of this idea, like, I know such and such, they got healed, these healing rooms, or they had this experience, or, you know, I witnessed this or that. And so, therefore, all your arguments against this fail, because clearly, uh, you know, God used that. Yes, there are abuses uh, here and there, they can't be denied, but that doesn't delegitimize the, the fruit we're seeing here of... of uh, a healing or a miracle or someone having a testimony. Um, what would be your response to that? One thing I might say is I, I wouldn't necessarily argue with their experience or or that even that a healing may, you know, I, maybe a healing did occur, but I always want to start with scripture and say, can you support these teachings from scripture? And if you can't support the teachings from scripture and the, you know, the practices from scripture, then if something happened, you know, maybe something happened, maybe, maybe God did heal someone or something, but that doesn't validate something that can't be supported with scripture. And in fact, we're warned in scripture about lying signs and wonders and about like, if a prophet says something and if it comes to pass, but then they tell you to go after other gods, you know, in Deuteronomy, we're told then, then don't listen to them. And so we need to be careful when, um, if we have an experience that, that we don't let that drive our theology. And, and so that's one thing I would say. Yeah. And I, I think the teaching, the, the teaching about miracles and their significance and uh, teaching to expect miracles and to be able to activate people as miracle workers, these things are not taught in scripture. And so you can't take some evidence that miracles are happening within this context, within this tradition, let's say, Let's say you think that there is a, a layer of authenticity in there. Maybe many of the miracle claims are spurious and are unsubstantiated, but there are a few sprinkled here and there that are accurate. That wouldn't confirm the teaching that they offer about miracles and about the relationship between faith and miracles, or that God wants everyone to be perfectly healthy, or that we should issue prayers of declaration for miracles. Uh, all of that would be spurious teaching, even if you had occasional miracles that, that seemed pretty much authentic. So that's an important distinction you have to make between a miracle that may be actual and uh, the teaching that goes with it in the context where it occurs. But I think that the miracles that are reported, I think they're actually overestimated. Um, the, the estimates of the number of miracles that occur 
is, uh, you know, it's, it's not as if they can really establish that these have happened to the degree that they claim that they have. And then they're not miracles of the stunning variety that Jesus uh, practiced or his apostles practiced. And they're certainly not miracles that outstrip what Jesus did. Mm-hmm. What's the name mm-hmm. of the film that was uh, recently released? Uh, send, send Proof. Send Proof. Yeah, Send Proof is a film that Elijah Stevens, I believe, uh, produced, uh, attempting to document the miraculous through in, in the Bethel Church ministry and in other contexts. And one of the things that I noticed uh, while watching that was that he never really does offer documentation for the miracles in the Bethel context. He reports on the claims that are made, but in that specific case, right, miracles being reported through the ministry of Bethel Church, there's uh, no documentation of any careful studies that have uh, authenticated a substantial number of those miracle claims. It's interesting what happens is that you get through the uh, filming and production process and the editorial process, you get movements from one segment to another where the storyline is that when I mention miracles in this context, talking about corroboration in other contexts just gets transferred to those. But it doesn't work like that. And I want to know, I'd like to see a film that documents the miracle claims coming out of Bethel Church, for example. Let's just focus on that one and let's see what the results would be if we applied appropriate tests to uh, determine whether or not the miraculous was really happening there. My suspicion is that if uh, miracles as stunning as those that Jesus performed were happening on a regular basis anywhere like that, anywhere in the United States, for example, that uh, the media would be uh, on it, you know, and we would be hearing more about it. Uh, It would be something you could not contain. Uh, Jesus couldn't go anywhere without crowds gathering, expecting him to do the miraculous because of the peculiar nature and obvious supernatural power evident in his miraculous works. You know, there is the aspect of false signs and wonders. So you can't really legitimize a a movement by the signs and wonders. Uh, You know, it doesn't legitimize the teaching. Yeah, well, that's right. But just think about it. What if uh, resurrections really were happening on a regular basis? Do you think you could contain that news? Do you think that you could keep that hidden? Do you think it would be difficult to prove that these things were happening if they really were happening at that rate? I mean, think Mm -hmm. about it. What would it take? Not much. Somebody's got a death certificate, right? They're pronounced dead. They're known to be dead. The medical establishment has determined that they are dead. And now they're alive. It shouldn't be hard to establish that that is so, if it is so. And yet, what is the evidence to that effect? And that shouldn't be such a big deal. I mean, if you have the power to work miracles and to do so on the same scale that Jesus did, resurrections from the dead would be no big deal. I mean, as far as a challenge, miracles aren't challenging for those who can work miracles. It's not like they have to strain to do it. they just, and, and so a, a, a large miracle or a small miracle, it's all the same. It, it's not a feat for them, right? But where is the evidence to that effect? Now, listen, I, I'm just issuing a reasonable challenge. I think um, if you're going to make a claim like that, you ought to be able to make good on it. 
And if you can make good on it, well, then that's great. You know, let's let's just let's see the evidence for it. Another thing you deal with in the book, and I think it's very helpful, um, you do tell stories of children who have been swept into the NAR movement and you provide some advice to parents, uh, you know, in order to guard against children being deceived by certain teachings that are problematic. And could you kind of just give your approach there and how, how you might protect your family or your children from false teachings? Yeah, we talk about, or we, we urge parents to really pay attention to their children's intake. For example, um, know what curriculum is being used in Sunday school classes or VBSs or summer camps and things like that, because in many cases, children get exposed to NAR and youth, um, you know, through these youth ministry, things like that. And so it's really important for parents not to just trust their, their you know, the people teaching their kids or teaching them soundly, but to really know uh, what their kids are being taught. We also urge parents to be aware of um, tactics that are commonly used by NAR leaders to draw young people into NAR. So, for example, um, it's common for them to characterize uh, non-NAR churches as being dead, dry, boring churches. I think we've talked about that a little bit already. But, um, you know, and so um, that can be a draw, you know, when they see churches that are really excited and having, you know, a lot of music, like worship is like a concert, you know, things like that. We, you know, advise parents uh, to be alert to, um, to, well, to really teach their child what NAR is. You know, it's, it's common maybe for parents, Christian parents that are really trying to equip their children to teach their children to be on guard for cults like Jehovah's Witnesses or Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you know, or something like that, or maybe atheism to prepare their children to encounter the challenges of atheism. But really, parents should be equipping their their children to know what NAR is, to, to just know what to watch out for, teachings about apostles and prophets and and this kind of thing. And, and then um, we also really urge parents to make sure their children no theology. They know how to read the Bible in context, uh, learn basic principles of hermeneutics and um, reading the Bible soundly. And um, and so we really challenge parents, really consider reading the entire Bible through when your children get old enough, you know, uh, just start trying to make it a goal that before your children graduate from high school, that as a family, you've read the entire Bible and talk through it together. Um, so this is some of the advice we give. The stories that you're telling about what's going on and how it's affecting people, I think, you know, if you could get this book into a lot of pastors' hands, it would help to inoculate them and, and put them on guard for things that they may be unaware that is creeping into their church. And, you know, again, as you were just mentioning there, Holly, you know, helping parents to give them tools to prevent, you know, the kids from going off the rails as well, so to speak. So thank you so much for, for writing the book and thank you for joining us for the interview. Is there anything you'd want to just uh, say to our, our listeners before we sign off? One thing I, I just want to emphasize is that we're not saying that people who are caught up in NAR are not saved or, you know, there are very many sincere you know, very wonderful Christian people who are caught up in NAR, attending NAR churches. So we want to be clear about that. But the teachings are harmful, destructive. They've caused a lot of damage in, in people's lives and, and um, so in churches. And so um, 
that's really our heart um, is. And then um, also, if we didn't talk about certain things um, during this interview, I just really want to encourage people to go to our book or even our previous books, mm-hmm. um, because there's a lot of scripture. We, we make a lot of um, arguments from scripture. We have our um, we have documentation to, to show what our leaders are actually teaching and where you can find those teachings and, and see them for yourself. And we just cover a lot that we haven't talked about today. So, so I know sometimes after we do an interview, I'll hear people say, well, they didn't really address this or that, or they didn't really address much scripture or, you know, so go to our books Mm -hmm. so you can find all of that there. Yeah. We've heard people say, well, they're just talking about, you know, a small percentage of what is actually taught in, in, in the church, you know, Bethel church or in the movement. And uh, there's much else that they do teach. These are small you know, emphases, they're not such a big deal. You know, I think one person estimated recently that was like, you know, 0.01% of the teaching is even like this. And my view is, well, first of all, that's a, that's a gross understatement of the actual attention that is given to the things that we're talking about in the movement. But the other is that these things are seriously aberrant teachings, seriously aberrant teachings. And if they occupy, if, if there is any percent of attention given to teaching these things, that is a dangerous thing in the church. And so that's, that's a, it's, just, it's a kind of a warning sign to the whole church. It's a red flag if it's in there at all. And of course, it's much more dominant. If you pull on one thread, the whole thing become, become, it becomes unraveled because the pieces are all connected to each other. Um, I would say in closing, my closing comments would be mm-hmm. to be very careful how you compare your church experience and your own experience as an individual believer with what you're hearing about worship and church life at a place like Bethel Church or a NAR type church environment. Uh, and, and be careful that you're not evaluating your own church or another church experience by the wrong criteria and that you're not distracted by the excitement of promises to be activated in the miraculous, uh, to become prophetic yourself, to um, experience uh, the fulfillment of prophecy in your own life through prayers of declaration. Uh, Don't confuse that with uh, the genuine evidence of revival in the church. And if your church is a faithful Bible teaching church where uh, people are just studious disciples of Jesus Christ and they're praying in faith that God will heal or do other things in this world in demonstration of his power and seeing fruit in terms of the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and these things growing in their midst, then those are the vital indicators of spiritual vitality. And uh, the other is window dressing. And in many ways, it's just a distraction from what it is that God is trying to do in this world. And so uh, beware, beware of a counterfeit kingdom and look for the fruit of the spirit as uh, the kingdom is manifest through transformed lives. Very possibly right there in your own church where you happen to be. And what's needed is uh, greater faithfulness to the ministry of your local church without going and looking for something more exciting to replace it. That's great advice and a good note to end on. Doug and Holly, thank you so much for joining us and uh, all the best on this new book. Thank you, Brian and Chad. Thanks so much for having us. 
Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you have a question you'd like us to address or just a message for us, feedback, good or bad, you can either email us at podcast at apologetics315.com or leave a voice message for us using SpeakPipe. Just go to speakpipe.com slash apologetics315 to leave us a message. And remember, if you include a Ghostbusters quote in your question, we guarantee that we'll read it on the podcast. We also ensure up to 50% better quality answers. Also, if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please leave a review in iTunes or the podcast platform of your choice. And please share this episode with a friend if you found it useful. Remember, you can find lots of apologetics resources at apologetics315.com, along with show notes for today's episode. Find Chad's apologetic stuff over at Truthbomb Apologetics. That's truthbomb.blogspot.com. This has been Brian Auten and Chad Gross for the Apologetics 315 podcast, and thanks for listening.